On this podcast, we talk about violent crime that's not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Reform Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Dudick, and I'm here with my co-host, Angela Jacobs. Want to say hi? Hello. We're talking with you about the Salem Witch Trials this season, and we're also, we've been talking about some of the laws in place at the time, and then this episode, I'm kind of excited, we're finally going to be talking about some of the more modern-day witch hunts that we've seen, because we like to think that we wouldn't have witch hunts today and hang people for cavorting with the devil, but we do other things now. All right, so that's that's where we're at. All right, last time when we left you, we were at the height of the witch trials in 1692. Accusations were spreading to outside of Salem, and we talked about that spectral evidence that was used, something that would be unheard of in modern law and courts today. Using this spectral evidence was starting to be frowned upon, though, somewhat. On October 3rd, the president of Harvard at the time, who was also an influential minister, his name was Increase Mather, which is a unique name, and his son actually was one who was also a minister and kind of started provoking the witch hunts when they even began. But Increase Mather, now president of Harvard, also a minister, condemned the use of spectral evidence. Luckily, somebody's starting to realize spectral evidence, things you can't see, is, is bad in court hearings. So let me read you. This is interesting. I'm going to read you this quote of what he said. <laughs> Granted, it's in kind of old-timey language, so, you know, take it for what it is. The devil never assists men to do supernatural things undesired. When, therefore, such like things shall be testified against the accused party not by specters, which are devils in the shape of persons, either living or dead, but by real men or women who may be credited. It is proof enough that such now has that conversation and correspondence with the devil as that he or she, whoever they be, ought to be exterminated from among men. That notwithstanding, I will add, and this is really what we hear about today, not dealing with witches though. It were better that 10 suspected witches should escape than that one innocent person should be condemned. You know, we hear that today, like it's better that 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person end up in jail. There's a certain prosecutor that I heard (laughs) during a criminal trial say everyone has to take one for the team. Yeah, I don't really think that that counts when people go to jail. Right. It yeah. was a criminal. It was a criminal trial, and the prosecutor literally because it was it was a high publicity trial, right? And there was a lot of you know evidence of innocence. And his comment to the attorney that was sitting in on the trial to cover the civil end of it, because the civil end of it, of course, was coming after the criminal end of it. Was everyone's got to take one for the team? What the hell does that even mean? It means even if you're innocent, I'm going to prove you guilty. No, that's wrong. 
that's just wrong in so many ways. And that's the kind of attitude that's wrong in our legal system today and the society in general, as far as I'm concerned. All right. So, well, that guy sucks, whoever it is. Person we will not name, but we could probably figure out. Yep. All, right. Yep. All right. So we talked about how the people accused were also not those anymore, just on the outskirts of society. Well, as, as we see, when things start to get a little bit more personal for the governor, suddenly he thinks maybe we shouldn't just be killing all these innocent people. So on October 29th, as accusations spread, the wife of Massachusetts Governor Phipps, Lady Mary Phipps, was accused of witchcraft, which is just a couple days before Halloween. It was October 29th. It's kind of interesting. So as what happens with those in power, once things became personal, he decided to step in. And he thought maybe we should do something about this. So before he had ordered the formation of the court of Oyer and Terminer, now he ordered a halt to those proceedings once his wife was accused. Who knows what would have happened if his wife wouldn't have been accused. He may have just let it go on. We don't know. So the court that was allowing spectral evidence leading to the killing of people accused of witchcraft was suddenly ended. But of course, he didn't just stop there. In its place, he established a new court, a superior court of judicature. And this he had a lot of terms. He had a lot of terms. <laughs> what is judic- Do you know what judica- judicature? No, I don't. And I can't I like he just her. call it the, the court that I didn't screw up on? <laughs> Not so much. Listen, listen, listen to how we court put it. Well. <laughs> My other court sucked and killed people. Let me try again. Let me try again. The do-over so court. This is the do-over court. This has court- so many options here. <laughs> yes, so Governor Phipps had now, this court was instructed to not allow spectral evidence at trial. So the witchcraft craft trials commenced again in January and February of 1693. So he didn't say stop the trials. He just said, keep the trials up, but no more spectral evidence. So in these new trials, 56 people were accused, but without the spectral evidence, of course, many less were convicted. Only three were convicted this time, but unlike what was occurring in 1692, these three, along with everybody else who was held in custody and accused of witchcraft at the time, were all pardoned by Governor Phipps by May of 1693. So they're suddenly saying, we are not gonna keep killing people because we think they're witches. So with that, the trials that would become known in history as the Salem Witch Trials came to an end. Uh, 19 people were hanged during these trials. Five more died in being held in custody. And while they were accused of witchcraft, mind you, they hadn't even been convicted of anything. And one person, 71-year-old Giles Corey, was pressed to death with heavy stones over two days because he refused to enter a plea of guilty or innocent. We don't do that anymore. People can choose not to enter pleas and they won't be pressed to death with heavy stones. Yeah. Progress. Progress. <laughs> Seriously, progress. So now let's talk about what was the impact of the Salem Witch Trials, the aftermath and the legacy. And I'm going to weave this back into some of the court stuff because it's kind of interesting how what we see now, some of it started with the craziness that we saw during these witch trials. So in the years following the trials, many of those who were involved seemed to regret their involvement and some engaged in acts of repentance, whether individually or through institutional acts. I'll give you a couple of examples. The General Court of Massachusetts in January of 1697 declared a fasting 
day, they declared a fasting to contemplate and acknowledge the tragedy resulting from the trials. So they quit eating and they thought about how bad the trials were and the tragedy resulting from them. It, but even those who sat in judgment of the accused witches knew that what they did wasn't right. One of the judges, Judges Samuel Sewall, he was one of the judges. He publicly acknowledged the error of the proceedings as well as his own guilt in them. And he did that also in January of 1697. And then, let's see, in 1702, uh, the general court declared that the Salem witch trials were that they had been unlawful. So, I mean, that was less than 20 years since those trials, but they're saying actually those were unlawful. And one of the chief accusers, you may remember her, one of the afflicted girls, Ann Putnam Jr., she apologized for her role in the Salem witch trials as an accuser. And she did this in 1706. But could you imagine if you were her and you were like a you know, preteen, young teen, when you did these, engage in these acts and these accusations and your actions resulted in the death of all these innocent people? Mm. You would have to live with that. At least you got to live, I guess. Um, and then exonerations of those who were accused also happened. So exonerate. Do you want to throw, I, I could read the definition here, but I like picking your brain too. What would you say to exonerate someone means? I mean, I guess it would mean to prove that they're not guilty, but I mean, from a practical standpoint, once somebody is accused of something, they're guilty of it. They're guilty of it in the public side. So exonerate is a legal term, but you know, for many people, if you look at, you know, people being exonerated by the, you know, the justice problem, you know, project in federal prison, it still sticks with you. It doesn't, it means legally there's no consequences for you, but it doesn't mean personally, emotionally, and socially that there's no consequences. So yeah. That's very, that's not maybe my legal definition of exoneration, but I think it's a practical definition. I think that's a real practical definition. I mean, legally, it's to lift or remove the stain of being called out for blame, liability, or punishment. It's more than, it says, that's more than just freeing an accused person of the responsibility for a criminal or otherwise illegal act. It's publicly stating that the accused never should have been accused in the first place. But I think you're right. Um, you know, once the bell has been rung, it's hard to unring it. It's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. That is. And it's, it, and it's interesting... <laughs> It's interesting how the public jumps on accusations, but they don't jump on exonerations. I mean, you usually hear half the story because what the public wants to hear is somebody's been accused of something, not somebody's been falsely accused of something, and then it turned out not to be the truth, especially when it comes from, you know, public authorities. Yeah, that's totally true. Kind of what I'm living. What's that? Which is kind of, you know, what I mean, professionally I'm living in this world with. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to accuse somebody and the press jumps on it. And, you know, that's so much sexier than somebody coming out and basically saying, yeah, it's wrong. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you're totally right. You're totally right. And in 1711, 22 of the 33 people convicted of witchcraft were exonerated by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And the families of the victim were also paid money for the harm they suffered. And then... Um, Oh, well, hundreds of years later in 1957, the state of Massachusetts formally apologized for the witch trials. So it only took them, you know, a few hundred years. 
Yeah, but not everyone was exonerated when originally they were busy. They were, they were busy. Yeah. They were busy. No, they had a tea party at some point in time. Yeah, they did have a tea party in the mob, and I mean, they were just busy for a while. Massachusetts was busy for a while. Yes, they were, but they but finally, as you know, the state finally apologized for those witch trials. And in 2001, the remaining 11 people were finally fully exonerated. So those 11 who hadn't been exonerated in 1711, for whatever reason, were finally fully exonerated. But there was um, not everyone, I guess, who was convicted was actually cleared all those years ago, either hundreds of years ago or more recently. It wasn't until 2020 that Elizabeth Johnson Jr. was put forth to be fully exonerated. For some reason, that's really difficult to determine. Her name wasn't included on the list of names of people accused before who were exonerated. There's a Guardian article entitled Women Condemned in Salem Witch Trials on Verge of Pardon 320 Years Later. And that was from August 19th, 2021 by the Associated Press. It described this legislation that would modify legislation put forth in 1957 to include Johnson's name. And now this is pretty cool. The project, it grew out of a project from 13 and 14 year old students at North Andover Middle School. And they did a research project and found that her name hadn't been included. So Democratic State Senator Diane DeZoglio used their project to draft state legislation to clear this woman's name. Finally correcting history, even if it's a few hundred years too late, they finally you know, corrected it, which matters, especially for anyone well, it just matters. It matters to be honest. So some of the, this is where it gets really interesting legally. Cause I mean, I don't know. I never really thought of like the Salem witch trials as a pinnacle of what we should do in our laws in the U S but some of the stuff we saw there really changed the way our legal system is. Some of the legal implications occurring after the witch trials shaped our U S court system today. The idea that having the right to legal representation when accused of a crime or a loss of liberty or fundamental rights, and that justice required that a person had to have help from someone skilled in the law, that idea started around this time. You shouldn't have to represent yourself like the accused witches were. you know. But as, as I'll talk about a little bit, we still haven't really fixed that problem, especially when dealing with immigration. That's a still a big issue there. And like I said, our, our systems aren't perfect. We have lots to do still, but they're better than the systems that allowed spectral evidence and led to the deaths of all of these people. And the beginnings of other fundamental rights were seen, such as the right to cross-examine one's accusers, because they didn't really have that chance. And, but that right's you know, still an issue today, as far as how to examine them, whether in person, by video, by recorded statement, but at least you have that right. And then we also have the fundamental presumption that you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, because that was not what we saw at the Salem witch trials. Today, we hear the terms witch hunt frequently when we talk about minority groups being persecuted by majority groups. A witch hunt's a metaphor for things we've seen, such as during the anti-communist hearings by Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 50s. But before I move into all that, I want to talk a little bit more. You and I were kind of guessing what these courts looked like. Well, I found a little bit more detail on it, which is kind of interesting. So imagine this is today. So these are the trials that occurred. So for, first, we have all the judges appointed. Well, three of those gentlemen had really close relationships with Cotton Mather, who was the one who was the son 
of the person who spoke out against using spectral evidence. Cotton Mather was a clergyman, and he was also one of the movers behind the witch hunt to begin with. So three of the judges attended Mather's church, and these were Chief Judge William Stoughton, Judge John Richards, and Judge Waite Winthrop. And then we also talked about the other judges. One of them left, and I, I wanted to give a little bit more context for that too. Nathaniel Saltonstall left in June after the first witch trials because he was so disillusioned after that first trial, how it was conducted and what happened. He didn't want anything more to do with it. So he bailed and they appointed somebody else. The court of Oyer and Terminer held four different witch trials in 1962. Most of these lasted several days and included multiple trials that moved quickly and lasted many times only about an hour. So they weren't a trial like we think about today. What happened is the person accused of witchcraft would enter their plea of guilty or not guilty, so innocent or guilty. And once they proclaimed their innocence, it was assumed that they also accepted and acknowledged that this was a valid court that had jurisdiction to hear the matter and render judgment. So there was that one case, of course, when Giles Corey refused to play along with the script and enter a plea, and he was crushed to death with stones. That was a, probably an indication to others what would happen if they did not play along. After the person pled innocent or guilty, a jury was selected. They actually used a jury system. Pretty similar to what we have today, but of course it was all men because everything was all men. And we're in the 1690s, so they would select 48 people as a jury pool. And then from that, they'd whittle it down to 12 people who would sit in judgment of the accused. So 48 down to 12. And then the person accused also had the ability to throw people out for a cause. So they had the ability to question potential jurors and try to have them thrown off the jury if there was cause to believe they couldn't be impartial. So they did have, it was kind of like we see today, but of course different, especially because most people accused were women. And I don't believe there are any women sitting on this jury, but it was probably all wealthy well, landowners. Well, 48, 48 is a large jury pool. I mean, they knew everybody in town. It's not like pulling a pool of 48 when you live in, you know, Missoula or Billings or New York City. Right. I mean, you, you, you're all probably related, truthfully. Exactly. I mean, they probably are. And who knows, maybe you insulted somebody's turkey during one of the dinners and they're going to you know that would be cause they now hate you for it cause to kick them off so once the jury of 12 people was selected and seated the prosecutor would then start the trial by introducing evidence against the accused now last time we talked about spectral evidence but there was more that they did that was much different than we see today they they introduced a lot of written statements from witnesses because the judges actually preferred these thinking they were more reliable than live testimony. So which hearsay, was, is, hearsay is more reliable than live testimony. Well, so it wasn't and, no, like, and, no, and no right across examination. Right. So not only that, but they also didn't have no way to record these things. All they had was somebody writing it down. So people would write it down. And not only was it there, the hearsay initially introduced, but they could then quote hearsay in their own written statement. So it was hearsay upon hearsay, or secondhand rumors and fits of fancy, basically whatever they thought they could uh, testify to, according to this article by um, Proof of the Salem Witch Trials, talking about the legal procedures used during the Salem Witch Trials by Richard Trask, 
that's what they did. They could even talk about dreams in these <laughs> as testimony. It, it's crazy. There was a great article recently in the, in the American Bar Association Journal in fall of 2020 by Len Nyhoff on October 8th, 2020, and their fall litigation journal about the proof of the Salem witch trials, which was a really interesting article and I pulled some of this stuff from. They also allowed character evidence, which was basically anything you had bad or suspicious to say about someone, an unpleasant interaction, you could testify to. Any rumors, those were admissible. Dreams or visions, those could also come in. We don't even need a rule of evidence against dreams and visions anymore. No, well, because witches were thought to appear in spirit or spectral form. So they could go into your dreams or you could have visions about them. Why not let it in? You know, and it's easy for us to condemn them, but it's, you know, they were doing the best with what they had of the facts at the time. They, they didn't know what we know now, but of course, what we know now is going to be different than what people know in the future. So, you know, things could be different. We see um, similar things in more recent times too, with around scientific evidence and expert testimony. A couple of these examples are as science advances, so does our understanding of how this interacts with the law. Two examples given in the proof of the Salem witch trials article are bullet analysis and arson investigations around how fires start in certain spots, that that has really changed over time. So we've had previous expert testimony, which really was not accurate. I mean, it's not the same well, as spectral evidence. Well, it's interesting that they were even doing that analysis back then, truthfully. You know, oh. and I mean, how, how the laws progressed and now we have Daubert. I mean, we've right. had Daubert since the 80s, you know, testing, testing expert evidence. But I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of fascinated that they even were performing those analysis back then. Well, I don't know what kind of analysis they were really performing. You know, a, they, they weren't doing bullet analysis or arson investigations. That's more from the 80s. Yeah, but they were they were doing I mean, they were trying, you know, yeah, yeah they were trying, I guess. So I want to read you a quote, which I thought was They're really <laughs> So here's a quote from um, that article, the proof article that really sums it up. It says the people of Salem believe that the devil was at work in their community. It turns out that they were right. It just wasn't the one they were after. This demon took the form of denial of counsel, rank hearsay, character assassination, and an unblinking confidence in what everybody knows. Then the author goes on to ponder that, because this is a legal journal, of course, it says, our responsibility as litigators, prosecutors, defense counsel, and judges is to prevent that time from being our own. And I mean, I agree with that. I thought it was a really good statement, so I wanted to read it, but I think it goes even further than just putting it on everybody in the legal system. I mean, it's not just those of us who are attorneys or who are involved some way, but all people really need to guard against the temptation to blame and bastardize those we don't like and topics we don't like in any way possible without following any standards I mean, to reach whatever end we find most satisfying. I mean, we, we have to guard against it and stand up against it when it happens. Especially really in a public, especially in a public forum, you know, it's one thing to um talk poorly about someone at home or among your friends but you put it out in the press and what the press reports unfortunately people eat up even if it's not the truth yeah it's so true i mean in, in modern times many of the many of the times we think of witches we think of people portrayed on tv like in the wizard of oz with the green skin or on hocus pocus that movie or shows like charmed which i used to love or sabrina the witch which i never really watched but you know, some people did. 
or bewitched, which was before our time. Um, but there's also a vibrant witch, modern witch community today that I've learned about online. Those who rely more upon nature and on earth, you know, they're, I've, I've um, interacted with them a little bit. But in truth, when we talk about the modern day and, and also past witch hunches, witch hunts, there's a formula that's been identified for what makes a witch hunt. And according to the SalemWitchMuseum.com, they have a great exhibit up about this. It says that the behavior responsible for starting witch hunts is that you have a fear plus a trigger and then you get a scapegoat. So fear plus trigger equals scapegoat. And that is really what a witch hunt is. And that's what starts a witch hunt. The scapegoat that they defined is a person who is unfairly or irrationally the object of blame. So now I'm going to read through a couple things in more recent times. And I want your input on these and, and other thoughts you have. So, you know, we have 1692, there was political and economic unrest and a lot of religious unrest. People had physical illnesses that they didn't know what they were caused from. Then you had these accusers who suddenly gave you scapegoats. And that's really how we got the Salem witch trials. But turning to more modern times, in 1949, again, before our time, but it's our history in the U.S., a paranoia happened that communists had infiltrated the U.S. government. And this was about the same time in 49 when the Soviet Union tested its first nuclear weapon. So U.S. citizens were afraid of being blown up by a nuclear weapon. And they, of course, turned on each other, as we do sometimes when we need to blame someone. There was a 1947 federal employee loyalty program that allowed federal employees to be drug in front of these loyalty boards on charges that really weren't quite clear. And they basically were trying to see if they were loyal or not. And in the end, around 8,000 employees were forced to resign because of charges against them. And at least seven people took their own lives. So it was, it was a big deal. And at the same time, the House Un-American Activities Committee decided that Hollywood was the enemy and began investigating Hollywood for communist activity in what many at that time called a witch hunt and also a violation of the First Amendment rights. And that was from an article from Salem to McCarthy, but there was no author or um, date cited, but it was available at the Chicago Public Library. And this same article talked about McCarthyism that I mentioned earlier. This occurred in 1950 after Senator Joseph McCarthy gave a speech to a Republican women's club claiming he had a list of 205 communists in the State Department. So nothing ever came of his claims, but he used a lot of heavy-handed interrogation and questioning techniques that really attacked those he accused and made their lives a living hell. And we still hear about McCarthyism today. And according to an article by Noel Johnson from January 25th, 2019, entitled, It's been 327 years since the Salem witch trials, but fear is ruling America again. It talks about after the 9-11 attacks in the U.S., how the Patriot Act weakened our rules against torture, as well as weakened some of our other civil liberty protections in the pursuit of terrorists. And then more recently, in an effort to keep people out of the U.S., our immigration laws have been used to hold children in jail cells and to hold children in these prisons, forcing them to defend themselves in immigration courts. And some of these kids are as young as four years old. We like to think that our laws are better, but if we don't look at our laws for everyone, how are we gonna make sure they're protecting? Because it's easy to just not think about 
you know, to, to other people to be like, well, that doesn't happen to us. It just happens to them. But our laws really have to protect everyone. And that's one way we can make sure we don't have more witch hunts today. What do you think about all that? You know, it's, I think it's human nature, right? I think it is human nature to go after people that threaten you, that challenge you, um, that don't hold your, your viewpoints. And I agree that the law is the way to keep us um, from vandalizing each other, from using, from using our power in a way that we aren't going against people who are bad people, but against people who we disagree with. Yeah. On the flip side, Donald Trump used the word witch hunt several times. <laughs> Honey, you should bring him up. He's my next example. This is kind of how I'm wrapping this up because we've been talking more about laws and, and courts and stuff, but it turns to politics now. Mm-hmm. And and some have also said that witch hunts are really women hunts because you see many times women have less power politically or financially than men and that we see them as women hunts. We've seen this in modern times. There's an article, uh, Political History of the Term Witch Hunt by Erin uh, Cassis, October 31st of 2018 in Vox. When she talks about former President Trump, how he won election, even though there were 22 allegations of sexual assault made against him prior to election day. And the electorate, the majority obviously who elected him either didn't know or didn't care. And he had brushed those off as saying that they were a witch hunt. And the author noted that something interesting in that Trump's victory seemed to too many like a national referendum on unapologetic hypermasculinity, and that that was a good thing. Well, and interestingly enough, at the point, at some point, the mayor of Salem made a comment about know your history on Twitter. Well, I think that's true, and they probably, you know, they've lived it. That's that's their history there. The highly. Pretty strong, it was a pretty strong comment when he was, it's a witch hunt, it's a witch hunt. She twittered, know your history. Yeah. Yeah, the highly politicized use of the term witch hunt only seemed, um, let's see, it, it seemed to be used a lot but under the 45th president of the U.S. He later used it as uh, to talk about the investigation by Robert Mueller into the legitimacy of Trump's election, calling it the greatest witch hunt in American history. He's now. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's not. That's. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. But well, so about, it's just, interesting. Yeah. Talk so, about making a, wow. Like, your history. Yeah, we're just talking facts here. I mean, this is what was said. So, something interesting in that, though, is that historically women have been the larger majority of targets of witch hunts. So, this article talks about how by having the former president used that he inverted it and that he was a man who had been accused of sexual assault by many women but then he claimed to be the victim of a witch hunt and the people he named as his enemies or accusers were largely female such as nancy pelosi hillary clinton elizabeth warren and diane feinstein so it kind of flipped the gender norms that we would typically see which is just interesting and i think like you said we need to ensure that we speak out against these things when we see them and we don't let people abuse their authority or their power. We're no longer hanging people for being witches, but we have to remain vigilant that 
We don't lessen our legal protections to allow torture or to allow procedures that ensure unfairness in the judicial process. As far as the best thing we can do to guard against witch hunts occurring, I mean, I think it's that we, whether you're a citizen or an attorney or a judge, that you vocally advocate for the rule of law, for fairness, for transparency, and to hold people accountable and to not allow these, you know, witch hunts when you're just going after people because you hate them or for whatever reason to occur. What do you think? No, I totally agree. And I also think it's important that, um, you know, it's a large reform, but, you know, pro se litigants are the ones that are getting screwed, frankly. And, you know, I, I, our public defender system, I think is great. I know so many public defenders, I admire them. They're doing what they absolutely love and they're doing such a good job. But the, you know, the threshold for the, what you qualify for as a public defender is so, so low. I mean, and there's this huge median income that can't afford the $350 attorney, but they don't qualify for a public defender. And I, I mean, I, as an attorney, I had one thing I had to go to court for. I hired an attorney for my own attorney. <laughs> you know, I, we need to, we need to ensure that as a society, we're taking care of people in the court system because it doesn't always work. It's not always fair. And if you're there alone and you're not an attorney and you're against somebody who is an attorney, even, and again, the prosecutors I deal with too, amazing human beings, but there's only so much they can do. So we need to start we need to start focusing in on not just people who are so destitute that they can't afford an attorney, but people who have families at home, they can't, they can't afford an attorney. And, you know, the judges I've seen that have have done great with it too, but there's only, they can't advocate for, they can't advocate for these people. And I mean, that's, that's my pitch for reforming the criminal justice and for my, you know, system a little bit, where people are taken care of because that, that to me, that'd be terrifying to go to court if I didn't have an attorney. Yeah. Well, and it's not just the criminal justice system. It's also the civil justice system. It's also the civil. Yep, it is. Yep. Especially when you're dealing with things like domestic violence or family law cases mm-hmm. where there are power imbalances. And I've been part of some of those discussions and working on it. And there, there are places that are looking at different, you know, legal structures that can be used to resolve complaints without having to go to court because then people don't have to get an attorney, but we're a long way from solving those problems for sure. Yeah, we are. But I mean, I think that the, the scariest part about the Salem witch trials is, I mean, it's all scary, but is people going to court without legal representation and with no idea what's going on, you know, 14 year olds, 15 year olds, people that have no and, and there's no court rules either. So right. at least if you're pro se and you're walking into a court, you know there's rules. These courts were just like, hey, here's some spectral slime. You're convicted. Right. I mean, it was it was really bad. I mean, we, ha- we have to do something and ensure that we have a fair system so we don't devolve into a country where we let people use the legal system to attack those they simply don't like or... You know, a neighbor who took some of their land, making up fairy tales about them in order to punish them for any perceived slight. But it happens. It does happen. It happens all the time. And if you can't afford an attorney, then that's kind of where 
keep going and that makes me incredibly sad and not very enamored of our justice system or even our civil justice system well it's not perfect but it's better than it was and better than it was better than it nobody's was. introducing slime and evidence that my prosecutors told me of <laughs> i mean she's pretty independent but i think she'd be like hey someone's trying to do slime spectral <laughs> evidence no. today <laughs> Well, you know, and if anyone wants to get involved, they can contact their local, their state bar association and find out what kind of programs there are available because there are programs people can use to help others in different, you know, different areas. So that's one thing that regular citizens can do if they have the time. And they can also get help if they need help and can't afford an attorney. So there are things out there, hopefully, that they can do. With that, we are wrapping up this season of the Reform Podcast. Thank you everyone for joining us. If you want to reach us, send us an email at thereformpod at gmail.com. We can actually provide you with some direction about how you can get involved in the justice system in your state and just key you in on the general place to go for that. We want to thank you, uh, fully thank you and recognize all of our sources for their work. A full list and links will be available on the website. Thank you for listening. If you're feeling in the witch spirit right now, we have some awesome cups available that say be a witch or, or a bitch. Sometimes I feel like a bitch. Sometimes I feel like a witch. So, you know, we'll probably stop selling those after Halloween. And before you go, if you want to support us, um, you can go ahead and doesn't cost any money to rate, review, and subscribe. Give us five stars if you want. If you think that we have something we can improve on, shoot us an email instead and tell us what that is. We want to hear what you have to say too. Your voice matters. The Reform Podcast is written, researched, and recorded and produced by me, Kimberly Dudick. You can follow the Reform Podcast stay up to date on Instagram and Facebook at the Reform Podcast and on Twitter, the Reform Pod. Our theme song is Be Mine by the Missoula, Montana musician, Tom Catmull. We're making this show on and around the traditional lands of the Salish, Pondere, Kootenai, Shoshone, Blackfoot, Chinook, and Multnomah peoples, and many other Native tribes. With deep respect, we acknowledge the Indigenous people of the West and throughout the U.S. Wherever you are, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep searching for justice. Bye, witches. Bye, witches. Darling, when the door locked in my little finger Walked hand in hand And that was just the sound of a word or a sticker My thumb against some wood or something I, I got nothing planned And when the room is quiet It's either one of two religions Joyful noise or wide open space The letter pulls you short from a crowded room With your pocketbook and your heart and your mind out of place be mine be mine be mine be Innocent. 
is hearing lovers kiss in darkened taverns while mining your home. But when your ears fill twice with chance encounters a charming third, and you'll someday find it stained to your bones. It is particular about company, and it sparks the flame of jealousy in those you hold close. And it has no fear of poverty, the bottle or solace. You see, you are what it needs most. Be mine.